You're listening to the Nicene Creed, a Lenten podcast series from Covenant Shreveport, a church on a mission to declare and demonstrate the gospel in all of life. Learn more about us at covenantshreveport.org. Hey everyone, welcome to the Nicene Creed. My name's Weston Brown. Over the last six weeks, we've been walking through the history and the content of the Creed, and as we're now about to enter into Holy Week and Lent will come to an end, this will be our last episode. Thanks so much to those of you who have undertaken this journey with us, and I truly hope that this has been helpful for you, both in life and in faith. As we do each episode, though, we begin our time together today by reading the words of the Nicene Creed. You can find this text at the link in our show notes. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church, We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Today we're going to be concentrating on the last three lines of the Creed. We believe in one holy, catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. As we've said in previous episodes, these lines were not a part of the very first draft of the Creed that came out of the Council of Nicaea in 325, but instead were added following the Council of Constantinople in 381. And there are a number of factors in play today. First is the nature of the church. The Creed says we believe or confess in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. For Protestant Christians, the word that probably really sticks out there is the word Catholic. And many Protestant groups have unfortunately jettisoned things like the Creed from their worship because they believe it to be a Roman Catholic formulary. However, the Creed is not talking about the Roman Catholic Church and was written before the Roman Catholic Church as we know it today was even a thing. Instead, the word Catholic simply means universal, or something like the whole. In other words, 
The creed is affirming that when we talk about the church or the body of Christ, we aren't just talking about localized places of worship or individual congregations. We're talking about all believers everywhere, past, present, and future. Put another way, there are not multiple bodies of Christ. There is only one, the church. At the time the creed was written, that body also happened to be at least a bit more unified and less scattered. But even today, with hundreds of Christian denominations out there, we are simply talking about different groups or individuals who, if they have faith in Christ, are all in actuality a part of one universal body, the church. So every Christian is, in essence, a lowercase c Catholic because they are all a part of the universal church. The creed also calls the church apostolic, which is primarily a statement on the faith that we are confessing. The Christian faith, as held by Orthodox believers in the 300s, had literally been passed down to them by the apostles. In the face of many heresies and pseudo-Christian systems, such as the Gnostic movement, The Council of Constantinople wanted to affirm that the faith that we are confessing is the same faith or the same belief system that was espoused by the apostles who walked with Jesus. In other words, this is what Peter believed. This is what John and James believed. And that faithful followers of Christ have been diligent to hand down that same faith from generation to generation. Next, we acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Here we have another line that some people find to be controversial because it seemingly links the act of baptism with the forgiveness of sins. And this topic has been a source of great debate throughout church history, so we're certainly not going to settle it here today. But here are a few things to consider. The scriptures suggest that there are two primary sacraments, or ceremonial observances, if you will, that have been commanded by Christ for the church. Those are communion and baptism. With communion, Jesus says that as often as we do it, we are to do it in remembrance of him. With baptism, the disciples are commanded to go and make more disciples and to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. It is seen as a primary component of the mission of the church. The creed is first illuminating that historically, Christians have not viewed these commands as optional activities for the church. To the contrary, this is a huge part of what it means to function as the church in the world. To not just be telling people about the grace of Christ in word, but to also be actively demonstrating and remembering the grace of Christ through the sacraments. So in that sense, the sacraments are a form of God's grace because they help to remind our hearts and our minds of what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. To that end, if someone were to say, I want to follow Christ, but I don't want to be baptized, the creed writers would have viewed that as complete nonsense because Christ has commanded us to be baptized, and it's a primary action of the church. So the question then becomes, do I have to be baptized in order to be saved? 
And this is where the debate has come in, because this really isn't a question that the scriptures are asking, nor has the church really asked this question for much of its history. A few things that we can say definitively. Baptism is not presented in the Bible as an agent of salvation. One is not saved because he or she gets baptized. Rather, the Apostle Paul makes it clear to the Ephesian church, it's by grace that you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So, in other words, salvation is something that is given by God's grace through faith in Christ, and this is given as a gift not as the outcome of a prayer that you prayed or a ritual that you took part in. With that said, though, the Bible does present baptism as a step that any person who has faith in Christ should take. And while it's not the agent of our salvation, the act of baptism is wrapped up in the process of coming to faith in Christ and turning from sin and becoming a part of his body, the church. Additionally, the Bible talks about John the Baptist and says that his baptism was all about repentance in that the act of baptism itself represented a turning from sin. In the same way, being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is an act of repentance, and our faith in Christ gives us freedom from sin as a gift. It's also an initiation rite of sorts, whereby the one being baptized is making a physical commitment to the way of Jesus by following the command of Christ. So, if you've been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there's no need to be baptized again and again. Instead, there is often a need to remember one's baptism and the freedom from sin that is offered to you through Christ. Finally, the creed mentions the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. The resurrection here is not the resurrection of Jesus, but instead it's the resurrection of all people that will occur at the end of the age. The Bible teaches that one day Jesus will return to judge the whole world, and when he returns, everyone who has ever died will rise from the dead and will, along with the living, stand before Christ in judgment. If you want to dig into this more, start with Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. When Jesus returns, though, he will ultimately bring about a new heavens and a new earth. And those who know Christ will be called beloved sons and daughters in the kingdom of God and will live with him forever. This is the life of the world to come that we confess. It's a life where men and women who should have been destroyed are instead extended grace and are offered a seat at God's table, not as enemies, but as children. This is the ultimate hope of the gospel, that Christ, through his sacrifice, has given us an eternal hope. Friends, thanks so much for listening to the Nicene Creed. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, Likewise, if you have questions about any of the things we've talked about, we'd be happy to dialogue with you. 
Feel free to reach out to me at weston at covenantshreveport.org. Also, don't forget that you can check out more of our teachings at covenantshreveport.org. But most of all, if you live in Shreveport, we would love for you to worship with us on Sunday mornings. Find out more about that at our website as well. Until our next podcast series, the Lord be with you, and have a blessed Easter.